Blog Talk Radio. Please stay tuned for Brandon's Buzz. I'm Joan Van Ark, and the buzz is... <laughs> so if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it, baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz. Place to be. Hi, this is Peggy Scott Addison. Guess what? I am buzzing with my man, Brandon on Brandon Buzz. This is Michael Brainerd on Brandon's Buzz. Are you Buzz? This is Maya Bialik, and you are lucky enough to be listening to Brandon's Buzz. Brandon? Yes. I'm so sorry about that. That won't happen again. Okay, I was I was wondering if that was me or if that was you. No, no, no. We're having some painting done here this weekend, and um, in preparation for that, someone just knocked the cable cord out of the, the phone, but it's <laughs> they know not to do that again. It's okay. Wonderful. Okay. So, welcome, everybody, to Brandon's Buzz. It's April 13th, 2009, uh, 8 p.m. here in Texas, 9 p.m. on the East Coast, and 6 p.m. out in sunny California, and... It's the beginning of a great week here at Brennan's Buzz. I have a great guest tonight and great guests tomorrow and Wednesday. Tomorrow I have actress turned soap writer turned author Louise Schaefer. Uh, she won an Emmy for Ryan Pope, good Lord, 25 years ago or better. Um, and she is now a novelist. She's just come out with her fifth book, Serendipity, and she's going to be on the show to talk about that and talk about soaps and talk about kinds of stuff. That's tomorrow at 7 p.m. Eastern, Good Lord, I hope that's right. 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific uh, with Louise Schaefer. Wednesday afternoon, I have uh, a great guy named Billy Vera. He is the lead singer of a band, Billy Vera and the Beaters. You remember his his number one hit from the 80s at this moment. Um, great guy, great songwriter. He's now a voiceover guy, and he still writes television themes and still is a, is a prominent musician. And he's coming on Wednesday afternoon to talk about his life, his career, his work. And that's going to be great fun. That's 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, noon Pacific on Wednesday afternoon. So come on back for both of those two shows. It's going to be great fun. And I have a great show tonight uh, with, a, with a great guy who I've come to enjoy chatting with on Facebook. Um, he's a licensed and practicing therapist in the Big Apple, and he has recently released a great new self-help book which attacks with relatable verve and with terrific humor the destructive power, the seemingly innocent word, should can wield over our lives. And in addition to those two full-time jobs, he also contributes a regular column on soaps to the fabulous Marlena Delacroix website. And he's dropping by the buzz tonight to discuss all of this and so much more. As I said, he's one of my favorite Facebook friends. And if this conversation tonight is even half as fun uh, as some of our online chats, then you're all in for one hell of a treat. It's a great, great honor to welcome to my show this evening the fantastic Damon L. Jacobs. Hey, Brandon. What a beautiful introduction. Thank you. How are you? Well, I'm great. I'm listening to your guests. I'm like, oh, my God. I, like me and Louise Schaefer in the same <laughs> sentence? Now, there's something I never thought. I mean, she is amazing. I love her. Isn't it? Right. And I've, I've really gotten lucky with this show. I've had some fantastic people on it, and, and it's a great thrill to include you as well. So well, thanks for stopping honor. by and hanging with us. It's my pleasure. First thing, though, I gotta tell you, it is your your introduction's beautiful. I gotta let you and everybody listening to this know, I'm not a doctor. I would love to be a doctor. I love the way that looks on uh, in the ad, but 
if, if I don't clarify that, the nice people at the um, State Department of Education York will be unhappy with me. So I, we got to appease them. Yes, and I'm going to take that down the minute that I get off the phone with you. So, but I am a licensed marriage family therapist. That's the official title in in New York, and also licensed in California. Fantastic. Well, it, it looks good next to your name, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure did. I mean, I really love the way that looks. Just the two D's in a row just sort of has a, a, a flow to it. Like, you know, I like it. So let's get the boring stuff out of the way right right at the beginning. Give us the 60-second bio on Damon Davis. Was, where were you born? Where were you raised? That was the boring stuff. Okay. <laughs> well, Brandon, I was actually born in California, um, Culver City, California, for those that are listening to this in Culver City, and um, grew up kind of often uh, the oddball kid, I guess you might say. Um, instead of playing sports and doing all that boy stuff, I really like to, you know, go home and watch my shows. <laughs> and, you know, instead of running around and going to camp in the summertime, you know, I, I wanted to stay home and, and watch, you know, Days of Our Lives and, you know, The Doctors and, you know, that kind of stuff and the Dinah Shore show. <laughs> You're describing me to a T. I think mean, we have some similarities here. Yeah. Uh, we're not like clones walking around in, in <laughs> Texas. So, you know, but I also grew up with a fascination, and this is from the earliest time I can remember, a fascination for human behavior and why people do the things they do. I think that's why soaps were so interesting to me as a child and why they appealed to me, because they did appeal to that sort of, you know, voyeuristic um, psychological interest that, that I really had going on. Um, and, you know, really the character of Marlena Evans appealed so much to me on that level. So I've often said, you know, I want to be a shrink because of Marlena Evans. I just wanted to be her. You know, I wanted to help all my friends and have the hunky husband and, you know, just run around getting kidnapped by my evil twin. That all just seemed like so much fun. And in that, that and really the thirst to, to want to be a therapist and help people just carried in through high school, college, and there on after. Here we are tonight talking. You know, I was going to ask you what makes one decide that they're going to go into your chosen profession because, you know, it seems like singers kind of always know that they want to sing and, you know, writers kind of always know they want to write. Um, when did you first get an inkling that this was it? When I was five years old, I set up a stand in my room, kind of inspired by Marlena and inspired by Lucy Van Pelt of the Peanuts comics and uh, kind of insisted that everybody who walked through the front door of my parents' house had to tell me their problems for five cents. And then I think I jacked it up to ten cents at some point because, you know, like this was Carter's time and there was a lot of inflation going on. Um, and it was – I honestly, Brandon, from the earliest time, that's like the only thing I wanted to do. I wanted to hear their problems, you know, and um, try to do something to help. So that's as much – you know, that's sort of been the fire that's been burning there forever. Wow. And so when you, when you, I mean, how do I want to ask this? When, oh, just ask when it. Did, when did you decide that, that you were going to actually pursue it? I mean, or when you decided, did, did you get any kind of resistance from family or friends? Or, or I mean, were people asking you, are you crazy? Or was this, was this a readily supported decision? It was pretty well supported. Um, I don't come from a family where psychology is necessarily appreciated. I mean, it's not disappreciated, but it, it wasn't. You know, I kind of come from a family culture of not talking about your issues with strangers. So in that way, it was different. But it was certainly not something that was opposed, or or no one said, you know, don't do it, or or you know, you quote shouldn't do it. I didn't get that on that one. Um, <laughs> What I did, you know, but I also thought it was kind of like too weird when I went to college to think, you know, I don't want to be one of these people who like 
goes through school and knows what he wants to do and then looks back 10 years later and says, oh, I wish I had majored in art or politics or whatever. So when I went to college, University of California at Santa Cruz, um, I took every single class I could in anything but psychology. Everything, because I was like, okay, I'm looking for something else. Anything else exactly. I can grab my interest, anything else I can grab my passion, I'm there. You know, I'm into it. And nothing did. Nothing did. You know, I'd learn about, you know, these poor mothers in Brazil, and all I wanted to do was write about the psychological implications of, you know, having your child ripped away from you, you know, or I'd go to a Shakespeare, or, you know, we'd read like The Tale of Two Cities somewhere, and I'd wanted to write about how Madame Defarge was, was abused as a child and how she needed to work through her issues and fight the revolution. I mean, it was always just coming back to that. I was like, all right, you know, it's been two years of this, and I see a pattern, so why fight it? Wow. How about finding a job after college? Was it, was it tough to, to kind of oh, get out yeah. there in, in the market? or, or Oh, no, because, you know, they're always hiring waiters. <laughs> <laughs> That was pretty easy to get. Um, working in my own field, yeah, that was pretty tough. Um, I took, uh, I did um, graduate school in San Francisco at a place called New College of California, which I'm sorry to say is no longer with us. Um, but it was a wonderful, it was like this alternative grad school. It was very opposite of the University of California, Santa Cruz. It was this very small, very like radical um, school that was very much about how politics and culture shape mental illness and how we as a culture kind of perceive mental illness. And it was very much from that standpoint, you know, like even like, okay, how as a culture do we benefit from pathologizing certain people and seeing them as quote-unquote sick? Mm-hmm. Um, who stands to gain for that? And, you know, who suffers for that? Um, and then in San Francisco, you can't really sneeze without hitting a therapist. So there's so much competition for these things. Um, there's so much competition out there just to get the clinical hours you need to try to get your license. It was pretty rough. So yeah. But you obviously you obviously stuck it out and 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 you know here like you, as you said here we are today. Here we are today talking about me and Louise Schaefer in the same sentence. So I'd say it was worth it. <laughs> No, eventually um, I did get the hours. You need 3,000 hours, if you can believe this, of a certain kind of hours to um, qualify to get your license in the state of California, and most of them Mm -hmm. were gotten um, in Palm Springs, California, where I lived. In case you haven't noticed, I moved a lot. And And when um, you say hours, are we talking about classroom hours? No, like actual practical hours. Wow. It's tough. They've changed it a little bit since then, but it's tough. You know, we're no no, uh, flakes here. So, definitely <laughs> not, Mike. Good lord. So, uh, what's what's the process? Do you do you find somebody to kind of take you under their wing, or what's the? You can do can that you, if you're doing do you, private do you like practice. Intern with somebody, or I mean, what's the? Most of my internships were done um, in agencies and clinics, and most of it was actually done through the county mental health system in um, Indio, California. For those of you who don't know where Indio is, if you go about 30 miles east of Palm Springs, you'll drive through Indio, you'll probably miss it if you're not looking. Well, now you'll see it. Um, it's, it's, it's really changed a bit, but it used to be kind of a much more quiet desert town. Um, and I had a wonderful, wonderful experience there um, training under a supervisor named Joe McHugh, um, who was also doing a lot to lead groups. And he was the one who really uh, got me into like the, the joy and the fun of doing group therapy. 
Um, and that was where I really learned to own that craft and, you know, have fun with that. So it was through that job that I learned to love group therapy and get the hours I needed for doing it and um, pass the exams and hail my ass to New York. <laughs> and did, did you always know that you wanted to go to New York? I mean, was that always kind of the ultimate goal? Or? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. I, I, I don't. Have you ever been to New York, Brandon? I've never been to New York. Okay, well, be prepared because if New York is for you, if you're one of these people who has to be in New York, you're going to know it within about 24 hours. And if that happens, you know, you're lucky or you're unlucky because once you once New York is in your skin, you can't live anywhere else. It's like you wow. dream it, you think it, you got to live it, and you do anything including sacrificing, you know, month, <laughs> great amounts of money and career to be here, which is kind of what I did because um, it's just in you. You know, I came here to visit my brother a few times. It was like, wow, I just, there's some, there was a way that I felt alive in New York City that I just had never, ever felt before. It was just like this energy charge. And, Tell me why. Um, I'm sorry? Tell me why. I wish I could explain it. There's just something different, just something, I don't know, about the gravity or something. It's like this island, and it's this little compact island where there's just so much energy and creativity going on um you can feel it i mean so palpable the art the um artistic creativity um the motivation the determined the stubbornness the resilience it's all just in the air and you can pull on that and you can feed on that and even we, even coming from some place like san francisco which is you know no slouch in terms of metropolitan you know i mean even even coming from a place like that it was still that markedly different for you yeah, because, you know, San Francisco, which is wonderfully cool, is not that ambitious. I mean, it's a city. You know, again, everybody's different. But, you know, like in terms of just the energy and the vibe, it's kind of like, you know, let's relax and, you know, appreciate and love and enjoy life and, you know, <laughs> um, you know let's chill out, man, you know, relax. <laughs> You don't really do that in New York. I mean, you know, people don't come here to chill out and relax. They kind of come here to get shit done. And oops, uh -huh. I'm sorry. Yes, you, can. <laughs> you have to bleep that out. There are no limits there. You can say whatever you like. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's right. Gordon Thompson cussed a That's lot, so I'm going to do it too. Um, yes, you know, he did, and he called, here to be... he called more than one person more than one impolitic name, so. That's right. He did. Okay. <laughs> it's okay for Gordon. It's okay for the rest of us. Now, if you can get Louise Schaefer to cuss, then I'm really going to be, like, <laughs> I'll um, make it my mission in life, I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, my gosh, did I heard Ray Woodward <laughs> say the F word. No. <laughs> so New York is just like, you know, once it's here. Now, it still took many, many years for me to get here. I didn't want to just, like, fly the coop and be crazy about it. Um, but, you know, I wanted to do it as responsibly as possible. But, yeah, I was giving up property. It was giving up a job. It was giving up some really good money and some wonderful friends um, to kind of just start over, you know. And I was in my early 30s and just thought, you know what, if I don't do it now, I don't think I'm ever going to do this. So I'm going to do it. So did, did you go before or after 9-11? After. And part of what I think was part of that drive to be here was that um, I was in Palm Springs when that happened. And in some ways that was wonderful because it was safe. You know, there was no fear of terrorists coming to Palm Springs because, you know, what would they want with a bunch of old people in Queens? 
<laughs> but, you know, we weren't too worried about that. But on the other hand, it was like, I also really felt like, wow, I'm on the sidelines here. I'm really on the <laughs> sidelines of what's happening in this country and what's happening in this world. And I feel like it's time to step up. And part of wanting to move to New York was to be part of whatever was going to happen next in terms of being part of that healing process. Wow. You know, whatever form that was going to take, however that was going to take, I wanted to be part of it. Do you ever venture down to Ground Zero and, and look around? or? Not really. <laughs> it's one of those things. It's like, I did that when I didn't live here. Now that I live here, I don't. <laughs> Um, I did live, I did work for a while about a mile away from there, and during um, we had this huge transit strike in the middle of a snowstorm in 2005, and we had to trudge mm-hmm. through the snow. That was like I had to go there to get a train to get part of the way back home um, at that time. It was really messy, so you know I was sort of hanging out there during parts of the day back in uh, December. But you know, it, they really, I mean, they could have even sold popcorn there. It became so touristy. Sure. And I don't like it when people talk, complain about things being touristy, but this really became sort of a tourist attraction. And you know, however, I will say that the most this is, kind of way I can imagine, I, I would imagine. Yeah, and you really can't see much anyway. But it was just, you know, they were selling T-shirts, stickers. You know, get your 9/11 commemorative coin. I mean, it was kind of gross. Um, the only cool thing about it is a wonderful store across the street called Century 21. And if anyone is ever in New York and needs to get some nice clothes for cheap prices, you want to go to Century 21 right across the street. And I'm not getting paid to say that. It's just it's great. <laughs> Fantastic. So is is there construction going on there, or has it kind of stalled out a little bit? Because, you know, for a while there we heard nothing but, you know, there's construction, we're rebuilding. And news has kind of stalled for a while about, you know, what's going up in, it, in its place. And so I was just wondering if if things are happening on, on that front? You know, they say there is. I don't see it. Yeah. I don't think there's anything happening. Um, I, I, truly, I'm not sure. I, I have yet to see any evidence of anything being, um, you know, really... Bought. You know, it's like the thing is they had to fight for years and years about what was going to go there instead. Exactly. And, and who was going to build it and who was going to fund it and, you know. Right, you know, who's going to make money off of this and who's going to do that and people argue and stall things out and, you know, that's kind of the way that went. So I, I haven't seen anything lately. Next time I go thrift shopping, I'll let you know. <laughs> Excellent. So talk about your day job. Talk about what you do now day to day. Well, what I do during my day job is that I actually work um, at an outpatient substance abuse clinic in kind of the East Harlem area. It's kind of like where the East Harlem meets the Upper East Side. Um, I work for a wonderful clinic, and uh, we do incredible hard work um, helping people make healthier choices in their lives um, in terms of drugs and alcohol and just in terms of making better choices in terms of healthier choices. Um, I get to work with people that are mandated by parole, people that have been out of prison, or people that are mandated by like New York's version of Child Protective Services. And um, I get to do a lot of groups, which I love. Excellent. Yeah. It must put you in touch with all with all, all manner, all facets of humanity. I mean, it just must. Well, it does. And, you know, again, I think New York does a lot of that, too. But it's, uh, yeah, sure. it's, a, really, it's a great reminder every day. You know, we keep it real. We keep it humble. You know, it's a great way to remember, you know, when I'm complaining about things in my little life, you know, that I've got, I'm pretty privileged in many, many ways, and most of the people I know are, and, you know, we keep it real. Well, so I don't want to ask for specifics or, or you know, anything like that, but, but 
when you talk about group therapy, can you talk just in general terms about what gets done and and why that appeals to you over, say, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, practicing with with just you know one patient at a time? Oh, I would love to. You just hit the like one of my favorite subjects, um, what, like group therapy versus individual. <laughs> um, I happen to be one of the people who thinks group therapy does an, uh, an can be can do so much more. Not that individual therapy is in any way bad or limited, but I well, I do think it can be limited. Um, in group therapy, what happens is I, I do various kinds of groups, but I do a stress management group um, every Wednesday. And I, it's a pretty large group, and I run it at kind of like a class or like a didactic, like an interactive didactic. I usually come in with some sort of idea, and we go from there. The thing that I love about group therapy is that I could try to explain something or work through something one-on-one -on -one with somebody, and it won't quite get through, or it might get through after the fifth or sixth time. In a group therapy dynamic, you can bring in an idea and where the group will go with that and the kind of feedback and support they will give to each other will be, I mean, just amazing. I've seen miracles happen and people's hope and change from that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's one thing for me to tell um, a mother who's had her child removed, you know, it's like, it's going to be okay. You're going to do all right. You can really make a difference here. And, you know, she may or may not believe it. She's in a room full of people who have had a very similar experience. Um, who have fought with addiction, who have fought in the, with the system, who know the system so much better than I do, that's going to make such a more substantial difference than anything I could say. And so I think group therapy is, is powerful. It offers people a chance to know they're not the only ones. It offers a sense of hope that is different from individual counseling. Um, I encourage anyone who you know, is listening who's ever thought about it, you know, check out a support group or something you know, if that appeals to you. Absolutely. And for me, they're just so much more fun to lead. Do you ever find that some of your patients aren't really keen on sharing their problems with a, with a group? Um, or... Yeah. <laughs> you know, the kind of agency I work at, most of the time they come in sort of hesitant and then learn it's a safe, that it's a safe enough environment. It doesn't have to be absolutely safe, but we provide a pretty safe structure and a pretty um, loving, you know, kind of family-like structure where people eventually, I'd say 98% of the time, we can, we can make them talk. We have our ways. Um, you know, they know they're not going to be judged. They know they're not going to be mocked. Um, you know, and they know that it's a safe place. So, you know, they spill the guts eventually. Excellent. Excellent. So I, you know, I'm curious about about I've never I've never known a a, uh, a therapist or a psychologist, and I'm just curious if you're able to turn that side of yourself off in your so-called personal life, or in you know kind of interpersonal dealings with friends and family. Do people ever think that you're constantly psychoanalyzing them, even if you're silent about it, or or? Um... Oh, I hope they do. <laughs> I hope you're thinking it right now, Brandon. <laughs> like, why did he ask me that question? Hmm. No, seriously, no, not even. You'd be surprised how much vacant space there is in this brain of mine when I'm not at work. <laughs> I um, don't believe that for a second. <laughs> you know, the truth is, if you're not wanting that kind of attention, if you're not wanting someone to try to help you with a problem, it can be pretty invasive for someone to come in and try to, you know, analyze or help with a problem. And I do a kind of – my follow a, a school of therapy, which is usually referred to as cognitive behavioral or something thereof, 
which is kind of a different dynamic from traditional psychoanalysis. You know, traditional analysis is like kind of the thing we see on TV most of the time or in the movies where, you know, you come in and you lie on your couch for 25 years and you tell your problems and Barbara Streisand whines and, you know, it's that kind of thing. And the whole goal of that is to try to find out why do I do the things I do? Why do I do the things I do? And, and sometimes the focus of that is very much about blame. I blame my mom if she was there. If only my father didn't work so hard. If only my sister was nice to me, I'd be a happy person today. And that's, you know, not what I do. That's not my thing. Cognitive behavioral is really saying, okay, it's not really even so much why you do the things you do. I mean, that's good, and that's great to understand that, but you don't need to understand that to make changes. Cognitive behavioral is really about making changes, whether you know the reason why you do you know, hurtful things to yourself or not. You don't have to understand why your relationships fail in order to start to use tools to make them better. You don't have to understand why you keep losing your jobs over and over again and make enemies in order to start changing your patterns so you stop screwing yourself up like that. And that's really, if I may tie into absolutely should list, you know, my book is really follows in that vein of cognitive behavioral. It's not about understanding why you do the things you do. It does, I do talk in the book about trying to understand the sources of the shoulds that we've learned. The shoulds, meaning S-H-O-U-L-D. So those listening, get your mind out of the gutter. I'm talking about shoulds, not the other thing you're thinking of. And, you know, it's saying, you know, you don't have to understand why you've gotten the shoulds. Now, it might be helpful for you to understand how you learned, let's say, I'm in a relationship, and being in a relationship means my partner should take out the garbage every single day all the time. You know, well, it could be to your benefit to sort of learn how you learn that message. You know, did your dad do that? Did You know, how did you learn that? Mm-hmm. But you don't have to totally understand that to stop making unreasonable demands on the people around you. But even 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 given that, I'm I'm sure in some of your group sessions, I'm sure people have amazing dramatic breakthroughs, um, in terms of in terms of their own, in terms of understanding more about themselves. I mean, how could they not? They do frequently, but I'll tell you this, Brandon, and this is probably why there's such horrible representation of therapists in the media, because you know therapy itself is is magical, and I love it, but it would not make for good TV. There's rarely ever. That, you know, catharsis breakthrough where the walls are broken down and the chains are broken and, you know, they walk through and they live happily ever after. It doesn't (laughs) usually work like that. I can't say it never happens like that. But most of the time when people gain insights and make positive choices, it's a pretty subtle, gradual process. Okay. And it takes time. Absolutely. All good things to those who wait, as they say. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so you, TV, you, you always see, like, cops and lawyers and hospitals, because you've got some high-stakes situations that can be resolved sure. pretty quickly. No one's sure. ever done a show about a clinic, because it's boring. <laughs> I mean, it's not boring to me, but it would be boring to an outsider. <laughs> so you mentioned your book. Let's talk about it. it the, the, the full title is Absolutely Should Less, The Secret to Living the Stress-Free Life You Deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- this is such an interesting concept, and I want I want you to talk about how it first occurred to you and how you decided to pursue this. I mean, this okay. is this is not a trivial undertaking, writing a book. No, it's really not. <laughs> it's kind of a pain in the ass. Um, it's, 
uh, well, okay, first of all, I grew up, and part, I think this is also part of why I became a therapist, was that I was kind of a pretty stressed out, miserable kid most of the time. Um, perhaps not so much from an outsider's perspective, but, you know, internally. Uh, I was pretty isolated, didn't really make friends very easily, and, you know, just wasn't a real happy-go-lucky kid, mm-hmm. which had to do with a lot of things. Um, and again, I, it was like, for whatever reasons, the fact was I was just not a, ple- not a happy camper. Um, and I eventually, you know, going to college, I kind of, you know, again, was just really anxious a lot of the time. Um, you know, what should I be? Who should I be? What kind of classes should I take? Who, how should I act in social situations? Mm -hmm. How should I dress? You know, and then being gay, you know, it's like, well, should I be straight? And if I am gay, how should I dress? Who do I want to be like? You know, (laughs) for anyone who's ever come out, especially in a big city, you know, you quite often feel like, you're kind of the only – even you could be in a city like San Francisco, but you feel like you're a total outsider. Uh-huh. And I went through that quite a lot and stressed out a lot about that and eventually came to this point of saying, wait a minute, what have I just stopped with the shoulds already? What have I just stopped living about you know, and other people's ideas of who I should be and how my parents want me to be and how my friends – say I should be in my teachers and my peers and, you know, the community and, you know, what if I just said, fuck it, you know, what if I'm just like, no, there are no shoulds. <laughs> and I was like, dang, there's a really, actually, there's a, there's a concept. And I felt so much liberation, such a weight lifted off my chest about saying, wait, maybe I don't have to live every single day under the oppression of shoulds. You know, maybe there's an easier way to be in this crazy world. And I was like, this is good. So I actually, like, wore a sign around my neck for almost a week with the in Santa Cruz. Um, you know, I was, like, reminding myself with, like, a no-should symbol on it, like, oh, that's on the cover of the book. Because <laughs> it was such a reminder. Because I'll forget. I have short-term memory loss, even back then. You know? And it was like, okay, yay, I feel great without shoulds. Now what should I do next? And it's like I couldn't remember to hold on to this concept, which was so liberating for me. So I made myself a sign to try to help me remember that, oh, yeah, I can be happy if I want to be. You know, I can feel better if I want to be. And um, that's kind of where the book originated. Wow. Um, and I realized that the people around me also seemed to be, you know, they liked the idea. They seemed to be happier with that idea. Some of them found it really annoying and still to this day tell me they find it annoying. But a lot of people also said, you know, you're right. I wasn't yeah, I was so worried about my grades and what everybody was thinking ask, of me. Hmm? I was going to ask you how many friends you lost over this. <laughs> <laughs> well, none that I, you know, I, the funny thing is, it's like, for me, I remember my experience of this in college recently on Facebook, because, you know, we're all like getting in touch with everybody on Facebook. People are exactly. reminding me from 18 years ago that I was going on and on about shows, and I don't even remember that. I don't remember these conversations I had about it, but apparently I did. So I guess I didn't lose that many. Okay. <laughs> um, and then, so then I just kind of like dropped it, or I didn't drop it, but I just didn't really nurture that. You know, I didn't really get into it. I just kind of like let it go. And then about 18, 19 years later, not even that long, but, you know, a while later when I started studying cognitive behavioral therapy and some of the work of Dr. David Burns and Albert Ellis, I realized there was actually a school of thought that talked about how our thoughts impact the way we feel. And that if we could change our thinking, if we could make little changes in the way we think we can have such a better day 
Wow. It's such a much easier day. And one of the ways that was described was changing your shoulds. And I'm like, oh, my God, there it is. There's this thing, like, from a long time ago, this thing that had occurred to me. And it's actually this, like, psychological school of thought, or it was part of this theory that was really making a breakthrough. I thought, wow, that's neat. I want to read a book about that. I want to know more about totally. this. You know, I don't want just want to read, like, I don't want to read the word should in a list of all the ways of my cognitive distortions are making me miserable. I want to know more about this whole should thing. And I researched it, and I researched it, and there was, like, nothing I mean, authors had mentioned it. There was an author in the 1950s named Karen Horney. Yes, that was really her name. She's not a prostitute. She was a psychoanalyst. And she had written a journal article about this, I think, in 1955. But nobody had actually written a book about shoulds, much less what the political and sociological implications are of us in a society carrying around shoulds about ourselves and about others. Wow. I thought, well, it's about time because you know what? If you're gay in this society, your shoulds are going to be different from a woman's. And if you're a woman in the society, it's going to be different from a man's. It's probably going to be different from a person of color. And a lot of ways that we've learned, even before we had language, that we should be different from who we are, that we shouldn't be who we are. Yeah. A lot of us got these messages deep and are still kind of living prisoners of those. Wow. So this book was meant to help you really get in touch with what shoulds might be holding you back right now. They might be holding you back from being happier, from having the kind of jobs you want, the relationships you want, just the basic quality of life that you want. Um, they could really be holding you back, and this book helps you get in touch with them and then do something different with them if you decide. That's now, what was the question again? Yeah. <laughs> no... I was I was just wondering how I mean as I, as I said it's not a trivial thing to write a book I know because I've I've attempted several um, uh, and I was just wondering how this idea came to you and and it's it's really a fascinating a fascinating story I mean you know especially if you if you look around and see that you can't you can't find the book you want to read I mean what what choice else is there except to write the book you want to read exactly exactly. So um, getting back to the, um, I said earlier about the county, um, there was the Department of Mental Health in Southern California, and um, I actually had the opportunity to lead a program during the day where I got to lead groups um, for three and a half hours a day. I just got to, like, lead groups, and, you know, as long as I met certain expectations on their end, I was pretty much given creative freedom to try whatever I wanted to do to keep people safe and improve their lives. So I, you know, was absolutely spoiled at this job and was given lots of opportunities to just kind of go, you know, to be experimental. And the one concept that I really honed and the one thing that I found people responded to the best was this idea of shoulds that are actually talked about in the book. Pretty much everything, it was pretty easy to write the book by the time I did it because most of these ideas had been sort of fleshed out in these groups that I did between um, 2003 and 2005 before coming to New York. Wow. Um, and the response that I had received um, from the clients I had worked with and from some of my peers and friends had just been so overwhelmingly, like, positive. Like, yeah, this makes sense. You know, this totally makes sense. I think it does really resonate on, on an intuitive level for, for most of us. And yet, you know, we kind of have short-term memory loss and we forget it so easily, which is why, you know, it, it's said over and over again in this book and the cover sort of meant to be an image that can – you know, be in your mind. Absolutely. You know. So once I came to, okay, so how did it actually happen? 
I'll tell you, okay, Brandon, between you and me and, and uh, uh, our wonderful listeners, I moved in with my partner in New York in the summer of 2006, which was wonderful and blissful. But I'll tell you, it's amazing how much extra time you have when you're not running around doing other things. <laughs> right? Okay. So, given that, um, there was a lot more time and energy and focus to sit down and actually write a book instead of directing creative energies in other directions. And that's how Absolutely Shouldless was born. Wow. I took a week in um, October of 2006 and kind of just, I took a week off work and sat and did absolutely nothing except write this book and pounded out, you know, like a pretty solid first draft and um, still worked on it for another year. But it was during that week that most of this book was written. I was about to, I was about to say, don't you dare tell me you wrote this book in a week. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. But most of it. I will know, hang the, up the, on the, you and never invite you back. <laughs> it was all done. No. It, it takes me a week to write a blog post. You should so be I... able to do that too, Brandon. <laughs> It takes me a week to write a blog post, so I. <laughs> uh, no, I mean it's it takes you know it's so excruciating to write a book because you know that part was fun writing the first draft was fun. It was everything after that that's hellish because it's sort of like if you make a change or you want to change a paragraph or you want to change a word, then you got to change everything around it and make sure it's all like got flow. Uh huh. Yeah, that's the hellish part. So when you had a draft you were happy with and you started sending it out, was the response immediate or did it take a while to, to get somebody to bite? Um, I, <laughs> I, now don't hang up on me, Brandon, but I actually had a pretty oh. easy time with that. Um, um, I went to the seminar actually through the learning annex about publishing and at the seminar was the CEO of this wonderful, wonderful um, publishing company called Morgan James. His name is David Hancock, and he was there, and he was. I got to talk to him and tell him kind of my idea of what I had been working on. And he's like, hmm, that sounds pretty interesting. Send me a proposal. So I did send him a proposal, and about four months later, he's like, all right, let's do it. Wow. So Morgan James Publishing, you can look them up online. Um, you know, they're a very cool. They're very different from traditional publishing. Um, they they let you keep the copyright, which some publishers don't do. They give one percent of all their um, proceeds to Habitat for Humanity, which I liked very much. And you know, they really are trying to help like nonfiction people like myself, um, who may not be known or may not have a huge following, to sort of get out there and get your work out there and you know get published. Wow. That's that's incredible, and so is, uh, the book's on Amazon, obviously, and I have a link to the book on my show's website, www.blogtalkradio.com/slash/brandonsbuzz. Um, is it available in in major bookstores as well, or or no? It's most, as far as I know, it's just online, like Amazon, okay. pretty much any place that sells books, Barnes and okay. Noble, um, you know, Borders, uh, Tower.com, believe it or not, sells books. Um, anywhere that sells books. Excellent, excellent. And in terms of the response from readers, what what kind of what kind of correspondence have you gotten? Oh, they hate it, Brandon. Say you <laughs> shouldn't have written this shit. <laughs> I don't know what to do. No, actually, it's been really positive. I can't. I mean, I won't. <laughs> I love that you said bestseller, and I'm like, okay, I like that. I'm going with it. Um, but but honestly, <laughs> um, it's it's doing okay for sales. It's not doing great, but 
I think what matters is that the people who really need it and really can benefit it are finding it right now. Absolutely. Um, I think it's going to be a grower, not a shower, as far as sales. It was released on November 1st of you know last year, and you know it's still okay. Um, it's it seems to be building a steady momentum, which which I like, and the response that I'm getting from people has been just touching, really, really touching. That's really great. You you know you, you never really know. I mean you know you just you never know who's out there, who's reading, who's listening. I mean you know I, I I've I've been writing a blog for it'll be a year on Sunday that I've been writing my blog and and hey, you know yeah. I've been doing this show since January and you just I mean it's all over the internet. You just don't know who's reading and who's listening. So you know that's kind of the that's kind of the disadvantage of of putting yourself out there like that is that unlike a stage performance or a song or something like that, you know, where you get an instant reaction, you really don't know with this kind of creativity who you're reaching and how you're touching them. You just don't know. I know. It is weird. And, you know, it's like, because this concept was in my head for 16 years before I really spoke about it. And even after I'd done a first draft and some friends read it, it was just like, you know, it was like being naked, only being naked in front of my friends would have been a lot more comfortable than letting them read this book. I mean, for real. <laughs> so if that gives you any kind of image or, you know, um, I don't know. But <laughs> the fact is I, it was just so exposing and felt so vulnerable for people to actually put these thoughts on page and have anybody read it. Um, wow. It was bizarre. And, and I still look at this book and I'm like, oh, my God, I have a book. That's just <laughs> weird. Um, and it doesn't quite feel as exposing now, but you're right. It's like once you put those ideas out there into cyberspace or in the print, you just you don't have no control over where exactly, it's going to go. Exactly. And yeah. the, the the thing of it is, unlike a stage performance or something like that, the good thing about this is it's there forever. I mean, 20 years from now, someone can run across it and and you know be touched in a way that you never dreamed of when you first published it. That's so cool. I love that. You know, and and I think that's been the case for me is to find books or even you know to find web pages um, that that inspired me. I had a chance to meet Jonathan Reiner lately, who had did this wonderful like online column for TV Guide ten yeah. years ago. Absolutely. And, and you know that was just it. It was such a great piece. It helped me get through some hard times. And I don't think he had any idea ten years ago that you know there was this person <laughs> reading it who was like, wow. This is really helping. This is great stuff, and that it would come back to haunt him ten years later. <laughs> so we never know. We just never exactly. really know about that. Exactly. You know, I don't. I don't want to get tawdry or, or impolitic here myself, but but you're an out gay male, as am I, and um, I'm curious how you think that your sexuality covers what you do every day. I, I, has has your experience kind of I don't know coming to terms with your spiritual and physical self, be it positive or negative, has it? affected at all your dealings with patients? You know, I, I'm sure it does. And it's hard to say because, you know, I've been out, like, I pass, I've been out more than 50% of my life now, which is interesting. Um, and so it's like I don't even really remember what it was like to think otherwise. I'm sure it's informed as someone who's, who's an outsider in, in many ways. Um, I'm sure that informs the way that I perceive others and have compassion for the struggles of many people, so I may have never been, you know, someone who has been in parole. I may never have been someone who's been, you know, grew up in that cycle of poverty and generational poverty and abuse and trauma. Um, and yet, I do have experience of being stigmatized. I do have experience of being, you know, 
having my existence kind of shunned by the culture we live in. Um, I do have the experience of knowing what it's like to be, you know, seen by some people as, as an abomination. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that absolutely informs my experience. I don't know if, like, I would have written this book if I was straight. I don't know if I ever would have given a shit about shoulds if I was straight. You know, like, why would I have even questioned that? And I'm not saying straight people can't question that, but I just, I don't know. I mean, I would, I'm a, I would have been a white straight male with a lot of privilege. So I think that group is tend to be, tends to be a little bit slower on the uptake as far as questioning the world around them and making changes about it. Wow. Not always, okay, not always, but, you know, frequently that seems to be the case. <laughs> so I just, I'm going to get, like, this hate mail, you know, like, I'm a white straight male, how could you say that about me? Not at all, but, but, you know, I mean, I know how it colors my world, and so I'm I'm sure it, how could it not help but color, you know, everybody's world, maybe not in the same way, but in some way, um, who's who's been through the experience and lived to tell about it. Right, right. So I just got an IM from from my boyfriend, and he's wondering, uh, he's curious if your book, Shouldless, has gotten any response from professionals or academics. Have you heard from any other therapists or, or, um, you know? People of that ilk. Um, they hate it because it'll put them out of business. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, actually, yes. Um, I received the most beautiful, touching comment from Albert Ellis's widow. Albert Ellis was the founder of Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy here in New York in the 1950s. And a lot of his ideas back then were extremely radical and extremely offensive. Um, he was one of the first people in this country to say, you know, screw this analysis bullshit. And he did say, like, at an APA convention in the 1950s, he used a lot of profanity. So you can imagine how popular that made him. Um, He was one of the founders of people who said, you know, change your thinking. If you really want to change your life, change your thinking. This was before Oprah said it. This was before, I mean, you know, that was revolutionary in this country in the 1950s to stand up and talk about that. And um, he died um, two years ago. No, I'm sorry, the year, no, almost two years ago. But he was working. He died at the age of 93 and worked right up to the time that, um, right up until his death or the year before his death. And his widow um, is named Debbie Joffe, and she is just one of the most gracious, kind people. Um, I was terrified, absolutely terrified to give her a copy of the book. Absolutely terrified. But I thought, you know what? Whenever I'm scared to do something, that's a really good sign. I need to do it, so I did it. Um, and she, several months later, was like, cool, this is good. <laughs> and um, she wrote me actually a nice little review that's on my website, shouldlist.com. You go to testimonies and reviews, you'll see her, her opinion there. Um, it's nice stuff, and, and that's a profound, profound honor. It wasn't finished by the time Albert Ellis was alive. Um, I don't know if I would have had the courage to give it to him, but certainly his widow, who knew him and respected his work and kind of is carrying on his legacy to get something from her, an acknowledgement from her in this way, is, like, profound. It's just amazing. And, of course, um, Cassie DePiva liked it, and, you know, that that's an honor, too. <laughs> I guess that's, in my mind, they're, those two are very similar. Um, she, Chris, she, um, <laughs> What? Who cares about academics and professionals? Let's let's talk about the people we love. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. She hadn't. Um, I I was able to give her a copy recently, and she hadn't read the whole. Th- uh, this was on the Rock the Soap cruise, and um, she hadn't read the whole thing by the end of the cruise. But she had read a few pages and said so far okay. she thought it was like awesome. And I'm like, okay. okay. <laughs> so whatever that says. 
Um, I also have a mentor um, named uh, Jacob Glass, and um, he does he's, – he's a wonderful, wonderful um, lecturer. He does a lot of talks about spirituality, about Course in Miracles, uh, but also really integrates it with, like, day-to-day -day concrete functioning and, you know, tidbits about Madonna and Oprah, and um, he does a lot of lectures in the Southern California area. And again, he's one of these people who I was just absolutely terrified, absolutely terrified to give the book to. But um, but he dug it and also right, <coughs> wrote a really sweet review for the website. So, so yeah, I think that answers it. Yeah, <laughs> great responses. You know, I'm waiting. I'm just waiting for the hate mail. And, you know, now that I've said it, I'll probably get it. But so far, I haven't heard it yet, you know. So far, I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. You know, you, you talk about changing your thinking and, and kind of the the impetus of the book. A couple of years ago, there was a there was a huge, I don't know, I don't want to call it a fad necessarily, but there was a there was a huge multimedia event called the Secret, kind of uh. kind of in vogue with everybody. And and the idea of it was was based around the law of attraction. And I'm wondering if if you got hooked on any of that, or, or if you thought it was a bunch of hooey. What was your what was your take on all of that madness? Uh, let me clean up the vomit here first. Sorry. <laughs> Got it. Got it. No, no. Here's the thing. Okay. I call my book The Anti-Secret. And the reason for that is because The Secret, you know, actually, for real, The Secret's got a lot of good stuff. And it's, I don't want to knock The Secret. It, it's, at its core, actually has some fundamentally important lessons about how powerful our thinking is and about how much we can change or rather affect by changing the way we think. We can. I'm a firm believer in that. I'm living evidence of that, um, and I would not knock that in a second. The thing that I take issue with that you know I get silly about is the fact that it's it's kind of twisted in such a American 2009 <laughs> cultural greedy model. You know, I'm not into that. And my book is like the anti-secret because it's like how not to get anything you want and still be blissfully happy. You know, it's like, you know, this. my book will help you be happy whether you get the prince or not, you know? Or the Lamborghini or the, anyway. or the diamond ring, yeah. You know? You don't need the new Jag to be happy. You can actually find ways to be happy without the car. Exactly, or the diamond ring or the big house or... Yeah, yeah. you know, and in these times and, you know, in the recession, a lot of people are losing their material possessions. And is that because they're bad manifestors? Is that because they're just thinking poorly? My <laughs> God, who can withstand that kind of pressure? I couldn't. <laughs> like, oh, my God, I lost my job. I must have been manifesting poorly. <laughs> well, there's a lot that's really wrong with that. But if you follow the secret to its literal sense, that's pretty much what it's saying. Mm -hmm. You know, if you lose your job, if you lose your house, if you screw up, it's because you're just not manifesting well enough. <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> Poor people. So, you know, my book is really the alternative to that. Gotcha. Maybe well, that's why it's it. not number one on Amazon right now. <laughs> Maybe it was like, you know, you should list to get the, the best job ever, but, you know, it's not about that. You know, as, as you said, as long as you touch one person, I mean, you know, you've, you've done your job. That's what I think, you know. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, since you you, you're a writer and, and – you know how frustrating it can be, you know? It's like there were so many times during the writing of this book, I was like, why am I doing this? Nobody cares. No one's uh -huh. going to be interested. Nobody wants uh -huh. to know about this stuff. It's interesting to me, but 
not going to be interesting to anybody else. Well, it might like, be interesting to my clients, and my parents will probably read it and be really nice about it. But other than that, no one's going to care about this stuff. <laughs> and it's 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 humbling, you know. And um, I'm finding that people who are reading it, who are finding it, are coming back to me with some great, great ideas, and sometimes some great questions. I mean, some really challenging questions. Um, and finding that if they apply this and if they really follow it, they're going to have a happier life, whether they're in a relationship or not, whether they're making a million dollars or not, whether they're stuck in traffic or not. You know, <laughs> just by changing their shoulds, they can just have an easier day and get better sleep. You know, I've had insomnia my whole life, Brandon, and part of why I wrote this book because it helps me sleep. I mean, basically, I don't even care if I'm happy or not. I just want to get a better night's sleep, and this book yeah. helps me do it. So is there going to be a sequel, or is there? Is oh, there? Yeah. Do I smell a series of books here? Or <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah, the next one's going to be about relationships. Fantastic. This is kind of an introductory book to shoulds in general. The next one is about specifically about being shouldless in relationships at all stages of the relationship, of the beginning, of the dating process, of the actual being in the relationship. And I'm also going to have a section about breaking up because you know what? Not all relationships are meant to last, mm-hmm. and there's actually ways to end a relationship that are dignified, that are respectful, and help you grow. And the first way to do that is to lose the shoulds about what that other person did or said to end the relationship. <laughs> so that's what that one's going to be about. Excellent. May I ask for a teaser or two? Um, you just got it. <laughs> no, it's going to be like, it's about the myths. I mean, it's really dealing with the dating myths out there and the relationship myths. Like, you know, if you're in a relationship with me, you should be loyal to me in every shape of the word. You know, if you disagree with me, if you um, don't defend me to my mother, you're doing the wrong thing. You know, if you're together with me, that means you need to oppose. You should oppose anyone who challenges me. Absolutely. And that doesn't work like that. Absolutely. You know, unfortunately, Absolutely. whether you like it or not, the other people in this world have free will. <laughs> you know, and that ruins a lot of relationships. Exactly. You know? Well, you know, I mean, if you think about what you want in a relationship, you don't want a lap dog. You want an equal partner, and that means, you know, taking the good and the bad with it. Exactly. But the things people fight about, like, you know, where we should go on vacation, what we should do when we're on vacation, which way you should hang the toilet paper. I mean, these are really the things that break a lot of people up. It doesn't have to be that way. Relationships do not have to be that stressful. <laughs> I tell you, the and I have a fantastic relationship with a great guy who I'm crazy about. But you the do. one thing, and we, we, don't really, we don't really argue, we don't really have knock-down drag-out fights, but... Though I, if I had to pick one main sticking point between us, it's that he loves to plan everything down to the minutest detail, and I like to be totally spontaneous. I mean, I I always say, you know, I don't know what I'm having for breakfast tomorrow. So, you know, and he likes to plan he likes to plan his entire month right down to the bathroom breaks. So, um, <laughs> you know, if, if I had to pick one sticking point between us, it would be that. Um, so, so if I may ask you to talk about how how your book might attack something like that. 
it's going to help people, and again, we're very much in the planning stages right now in this book, so it's, it's, it's going to, I mean, it sounds like you two already have a way of being together where you can respect these differences and not shoot Absolutely. each other. It, and it works great. Most of, the, most of the time, it works great. And I'll say, you know, there has to be a level of respect. There has to be a tolerance for difference. There has to be Absolutely. a letting go of shoulds. It's so easy, you know, probably for your partner to say, you should plan things. You should be more organized. What's going to happen if you just... <laughs> Let things, try to let things happen. Oh, my God. I'm sure on his part he's had to let go of some of his shoulds about that and in order to, you know, be with you and be able to have fun and respect that about you. Oh, my uh-huh. God, Brandon, we're totally clones. We're so much the same way because my partner and I drove across country last year um, and had a great time. But, you know, I'm very much like let's just hit the road and where we uh-huh. go is where we go and where we end up is where we end up. And See what happens, Absolutely. You know, and he's very much prefers to like, okay, to, we're going to, by day one, we're going to be here. By day two, we're going to be here, and then we're going to stay there. I'm like, oh, okay. So we both really had to respect these qualities in each other, or the alternative is to fight and have a miserable vacation. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's that kind of thing. This book is going to help people to let go of some of their shoulds and be able to be with people with less shoulds, recognize that there's always going to be shoulds. That's okay. You don't have to, you know, they don't have to be completely gone, but just to recognize they don't have to have any power either. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I have some callers on the line who would like to speak with you. Would you mind taking a call or two? I'd love to take a call or two. How about Eric? You're not mad at me for my white straight male comment. <laughs> nah, How about Eric? 561? You're on the phone with Damon Jacobs. Hello? 561? Hey. Yes. Hello, Hello how are you? Good. Thanks for having me on, Brandon. Yes, who is uh, I have a doc- I, This is Neil from uh, Florida. Hi, Neil from <laughs> hey, Neil. Florida. How's it going? Yes, I'm from Facebook. <laughs> um, I had a question for you. Cool. Um, Are you my favorite reference- friend on Florida? Yes, oh, yes. Your oh, latest one. Oh, <laughs> my God. How cool. <laughs> the right. Dynamite Reader, yes. I know. Um, I had a question oh, for you. As I'm listening to this, this interview, I'm thinking of all these things. Obviously, I'm thinking of how soap operas build a lot of shit into our life, too, and do undo a lot of shoulds as well. So as as the decades have passed and all these soap operas, the roles have changed. Women are more successful. People are learning not to stay in bad relationships and all of that. So there are a lot of, like, cues. I mean, I'm sorry? Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm here. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Okay. A lot of social cues come from these soap operas. Uh, I remember my sister used to put us right in front of the TV um, and... Um, we would watch these soap operas and we would learn all these social things about what was valuable and what was not. It was not good to be a prostitute in 1979 because all my children really took a bad stance on it. You know, all of those little social cues. But, um, and you know, I'm making light of that, but there are a lot of things uh, that relate to the soap opera world and to the primetime soaps and stuff like that that have created a lot of shoulds in the minds of women and men and things like that. And it's really undoing that. And, if I can just go on for one more second. Um, there was a movie, a horrible movie, which I hate to reference, but there was Pia Zadora's Lonely Lady. And at the very end of the movie, <laughs> at the very end of the movie, she is going to get a, an Academy Award of some sort. Um, and uh, she just walks away. And she just has, has, and ha- has had enough of the shoulds and is walking away. But I think a lot of soap operas and a lot of movies take you to the point where maybe the character walks away, but there's no after story. There's no way, you know, 
how do they form their lives, what structure do they give it to them. You know, you're you're living in a rare era because you've got done away with the shoulds, but a lot of folks that get to the point, you know, to drink the water don't know what to do afterwards. You know, you can take the horse there, but but how do they live their lives? Because there aren't social cues for that, you know, and um, there aren't really role models for that. So, I mean, I'd love to see a, a, a book on um, shouldless living, you know, people that have gotten to that point and how they've managed, you know, um, to live their life and restructure their life or, or in whatever manner. Sorry to go on for No, Neil, beautiful, beautiful. Read the book because actually <laughs> – No, I haven't. And I admit I haven't. I haven't. Yeah, no, no, no. No, that's, that's a great point. You know, media, you know, for better or for – I've got to say it's not always bad. Media has such a profound influence on our shoulds growing up. And I, I do criticize that quite a bit in my life and quite a bit in the book. I don't think it's always bad. I was really from soap operas as a kid that I got some pretty important messages about overcoming obstacles and learning Absolutely. not to take shit from other people, you know, and watching Julie Williams go through, like, every terrible thing that could ever go through, you know, that somebody could ever go through and still surviving and, you know, fighting to live after she got shot. I mean, that was, like, a pretty powerful message for me as a kid, Um you know, and I think the shoulds or the messages implicit in that is like, you know, you can survive this. You can't survive Oh, definitely, this. yeah. Um, no, I, I just think, that, you know, go ahead. And, <laughs> well, and I just think, but but you're right when, um, you know, the lonely ladies, I never, ever thought of that before in this context, and I love that because I love that movie, and now I really want to see it again. Um, I, I do address in the book that the fact is if you're going to question shoulds and you're really going to live your life shouldless, you may lose some friends. You know, mm-hmm. sad to say, but it's true. It's like we do live in a world where these, you know, our society demands a certain level of social conformity. Um, and if you're starting to make changes in your life and you're starting to make healthy changes, there might be some people in your life that are not very happy about this. Um, if you decide that, you know, I don't have to keep on this track of this educational track that I'm on. I don't have to keep living my life by other people's shoulds. You might be well, ruffling feathers quite a bit and, and might have to deal with that. Right. You know, the, there is the other movie, uh, which is Diane Cannon's The Best Little Girl in the World, I think it's called. I'm not sure. Um, it's something like that. But it really goes through her life from a kid, getting these social messages from the church, from her parents, from her lovers, from her whatever, and really trying to to wrestle her life to to be to please all these people to get love. You know, a lot of these shoulds are like you have to be something in order to get love. You know, and I, I think it's it's so empowering that your message is, you know, you can be happy without all these things that you technically should have. You know, and you can find a different. But it, it's just a remarkable thought, especially in these times, to really find a, a, a different perception and interpretation and, and meaning of happiness. Uh, it's so Thank critical. You. I think the book is so valuable. Sure. Thank you, Neil. Well, I'll, I'll let you go. I know there are other people. Uh, there are other people waiting to answer uh, ask questions. That's okay. You know, one of the things that I think is is really wonderful about the time that we're living in now is because of the internet and because we have this access to community that we never had before. If you're questioning shoulds and you're getting like stigmatized or you're getting crap for that in your life, there is a community out there. There might be one where you're living now. You know, there's no one who can really live in a rural area anymore and think they're the only gay per- person on this earth. Because Absolutely. all you have to do is go on the internet and see, you know, there's a bunch of screaming queens out there. It's like, you know, <laughs> you're not the only one. I'm not the only soap fan. My God, I thought I was the only one. <laughs> I'm serious. And thanks to the Internet, I know that there's just some 
wonderful, talented, intelligent people out there that really are interested and take that seriously. So even if you're breaking through shoulds and even if you're having to deal with some consequences and some social ostracization in your life because of that, there is a world out there. There is the Internet. There is a community where you can chat, where you can get to know that, um, you know, and get to know other people who are kind of trying to live their lives in the same way. And you talked about losing love, but, Neil, I'm going to tell you that I, I think the kind of love that we can bring into our lives when we're living and from an authentic place without shoulds is very different from the kind of love and relationships you build when you're living your life from a place of shoulds and obligations. Well, and you, you, you really hit the nail on the head. It's really that new space. I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's, no, there's a reason that we actually rely on our crutches and our, and our hang-ups and all those things. They're comfortable. We've lived with them. They, you know, they're excuses. They're victimizations of ourselves. You know, but, but how do we unvictimize ourselves to, to say, okay, well, if I, if I throw away all these shoulds, then I'm going to become powerful. And that power is so hard to harness in oneself. And it can be very powerful and liberating, I agree. But a lot of people have difficulty with it because it's, exact, it's brand new. I mean, without going through counseling and all, all of that, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult animal to, to really, you know, and as you said, you know, the people that love you now won't love you then, you know. It, um, and that's just, the, the, you know, the, and it's an amazing process. Or they might love you more. You know, I talk about this always at the holidays. If you're used to being in a family where everybody gives gifts and you are not in a position to do that, and by doing so you go into an incredible amount of credit card debt and your only reason you're buying gifts is because you've been taught you should, if you take a stand and say, you know what, this year I'm not doing it, I'm not buying people Christmas gifts, you may lose a few fans, but you may also earn the respect of many people in your family and many people may look up to you after that for taking a stand and because you've started to pave that path they can do it too and you may be helping people in ways you hadn't even realized simply by saying I'm not going to do this should stuff anymore I'm just not you never know well, how I, you're helping people with that I have to go order your book online now thanks for Ooh, wow, okay <laughs> ding 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 thanks Brandon <laughs> thank you Neil for calling in thank you very much thank you how about one more? Okay. That was it was it was a great great guy. It's, you know, these these call-in shows you never know who you're going to get because there's no call screener. So you're you know it's kind of all, it's it's a you know it's a tossed salad of of, of humanity so to speak. My goodness. Okay. How about Eric code three one five? Eric code three one five. You're on the line with Damon Jacobs. Hello. Hello. Hey, this is Chris. Um, I just wanted to say good book. Wow, thanks. Who? I'm sorry, what is your name? Curtis. Curtis? Yeah. Thank you, Curtis. I'm honored to hear that. Have you read it? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's cool. Did, has it been helpful for you in any way? Curtis? Hello. Curtis, you still with us? Hmm. I don't know. I guess we lost him, but it sounds like you have you have one fan, so. <laughs> hmm, that was strange. I'm here, Brandon. Hello? Damon? Brandon, I'm here. I guess we have someone else, Brandon. Who's there? I guess so. 
the 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 lines are crossed here. So you know, you you mentioned uh, soaps when when you and Neil were talking about kind of the um, how how we learned the shoulds from early on. You know, you're writing a a column for the great Marlena Delacroix at her website MarlenaDelacroix.com. Um, you're writing you're you're writing under the under the moniker of soap shrink. Um, okay. I want to know how this idea came about. Okay, well. Here's the G-rated version. No, I'm kidding. There's, um, it's, it's very simple. When I, I told you I wrote the book, and I sat down, and I pounded it out, and then I needed help. I needed help with an editor because, you know, I'm not the best writer in the world, and I'm not the most organized writer in the world. So I really needed help, and I had a very hard time finding an editor. And I had been frequently blogging on Marlena's um, blog, MarlenaDelacroix.com. If you're not sure how that's spelled, you can um, blog it on Google, or if you're on my Facebook page, you'll see a link to it. Um, Marlena De La Croix is spelled D-E-L-A-C-R-O-I-X. And um, I had been blogging quite a bit under the name Fabobug. Okay. So if you go to some of her older that's columns, you. you'll see me there under Fabobug. That's you. I that never knew. <laughs> it's my multiple identities here. And um, we just started getting along really well and just found that we had a mutual love for soaps. And um, I, turned, I knew she was living here in New York, and I knew she was a journalism professor. And at one point, I, I was a Sunday night, and I wrote to her, I'm like, oh, my God, what do I do? I have this book, and I need help. Do you know anyone who could edit it? Do you know any editors? <laughs> and as it turned out, her husband, Ed Heyman, um, is a professional editor. And he also happens to be one of the most sweetest, nicest, um, professional gentleman that you'll ever meet in this world. Um, he's so cool. And he really got it. He looked at the book. He looked at the ideas. He totally got it right away and was like, yeah, I want to do this. I want to edit this. I'm like, okay, we're in business. So wow. once we finished working on the book and we had all that done and, and sent off to the publisher, um, he and, and Marlena um, struck up this idea of, you know, what if I kind of use this um, you know, sort of soap fanaticism I have and, and the psychology that I've been trained in to do something kind of fun and interesting, like the soap shrink. Excellent. Wow, that's like, okay, the like marriage of my two crazy passions in this world, psychology and soap operas. I, I'd never thought about that, but, you know, here was this great chance, and I'm like, okay, let's do it. Fine. Absolutely. And had you known of her previously? Because she wrote a great column for years on Soap Opera Weekly called Critical Condition. Um, had you had you followed her at all, or, or no? I had, I, you know, I remember seeing that. I was in college for most of the time that she. I think that that was coming out. And I think when I was in college, I was really trying to focus on college. Though I would always sneak yeah. into the, you know, the lounge to catch Days of Our Lives in Another World in Santa Barbara all the time. But um, you know, I I didn't really in Santa Cruz have access to any of the magazines at that time. Okay. So I missed a lot of that, unfortunately. Um, it's, I just I know what I can remember is that it was brilliant, and you know I'm still hearing that today. I wish some of those were still out there. But um, it's been a great, great opportunity, and um, you know so many people right now are just in this this freaked out, shocked, traumatized state about guiding light. Oh yes, you know I I was I was going to ask you. Um, you know, I mean, the loss to the industry is incalculable. The loss to television is incalculable just because, as I, I wrote a blog post last weekend, and as I said, you know, this thing debuted in the middle of, of Franklin Roosevelt's second term, or at the beginning of Franklin Roosevelt's second term. It survived 13 presidencies. 
It predates the computer. It predates television itself. Um, you know, are, are we taking this this, this this cancellation, this loss, more personally, merely because of its longevity, or is there a bigger story behind this, behind this uproar that's kind of risen up in the last week or two about about this cancellation? Well, bef okay, I can answer that, but here's what I'm, as, as Damon Jacobs and as the soap shrink, here's my investment, here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that anyone who's listening to this who's struggling will find a way to find some peace with this. That doesn't mean it's okay. That doesn't mean we like what's going on. That doesn't mean it's okay that this is happening. But we do, the choice we have in a situation like this is to gain more access to peace around it. And, I mean, part of that just has to do with the fact that everything in this world is going to eventually die. Mm -hmm. Everything. You know, I am going to die. Brandon's going to die. You know, that, that nice, you know, everybody. You know, every show is going to die. Every performer who's on every show is going to die. This is a reality, and it's not a reality this culture likes to talk about very much. Now, yeah. Guiding Light has defied all the odds. It's been an amazing, powerful force for, like, 72 years. It is in the Guinness Book of World Records. Um, I, I, that is something to be celebrated. That is something to be commemorated. Is it meant to last forever? No, nothing is meant to last forever. And people may not like what I'm saying right now, but if you believe that everything should last forever and that people shouldn't die and that entertainment like this and legacies like this should never go away, you're kind of setting yourself up to be pretty miserable and upset because everything yeah. does change eventually. Yeah. It does. Now, on that end, that doesn't mean I like it. That doesn't mean I'm happy about it. I'm really pissed because, you know, the show itself, I think, was in a sort of soulless creative doldrum for, like, years until yeah. February. Yeah. And suddenly, like, overnight, the show changed into this, like, profoundly amazing, um, great piece of art. And it's really been unfolding that. And I think to pull the plug on it now is a tragedy. It's a huge loss. Mm hmm all I know is that I'm not going to sacrifice my peace of mind. I'm not going to sacrifice my, you know, day-to-day -day happiness because of this. Absolutely. It's not worth, you know, getting completely verklempt over, but, you know, it, it, it's still, given that, it still is a huge loss. It really is. Right. And it's, I'm not saying that because I don't care about soaps. There are some people, in the, you know, outside the soap world who don't get it. They don't know what it's like to have this ripped away from you. Yes. I do get it. I really do. I don't say anything of like what I'm saying flippantly. I do have to wonder, you know, and I think many people have been questioning where this should came from, that these shows should last forever. You know, they didn't start that way. You know, I remember when Days of Our Lives turned 20, which now seems like, God, that's so young, only 20. But, you know, back in 1985, for a show to turn 20, that was pretty momentous, monumental. Mm -hmm. I remember when Search for Tomorrow turned 35, right before it was canceled, and it was like, 35 years old, oh my god, this has been around ever. And most of the shows that are on now have been around more than 35 years. It's not mm -hmm. that big a deal. You know, they weren't meant to last forever. And I think there is something to be said for dying with dignity. I really do. So, you know, I'm not happy about it, but I also keep in mind that the only thing that's making me unhappy about it is when I have this should about Guiding Light shouldn't have been canceled. Because it has been. That's what yeah. happens when I argue with reality. Byron Katie is this wonderful author. She says, you know, when I argue with reality, I lose, but only every time. <laughs> and it's true. If I argue with reality, it's, I'm going to lose. Now, a lot of people are holding on to hope that it might survive, it might end up on the Internet, it might end up on Lifetime. Mm -hmm. You know, it might. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about that. 
Um, but, but, you know, it might. But the point is, nothing is going to last forever in this world. It's really not. And if we could at least accept that, and that we don't have to like it, but we can accept it, it's going to make everything else easier. You know, from my point of view, it's not that, it's not that Guiding Light or any of the shows should last forever. It's simply that, you know, for as long as I can remember being alive on this planet, these shows have been in my life. And so it's, it's, it's not that I think they should last forever. It's that it's hard to imagine them not being there, even on the periphery in some way, because they always have been. I'm hearing you. I know. And, you know, I often wonder, I mean, again, this is me trying to think outside the box a little bit. You know, when you and I were growing up, um, you know, it was the soaps were, were the ratings were very strong for like 15 of the shows. I think at one point there were 19 shows on. It was filling a necessary function in this society. It was filling a necessary function. It was helping women to be empowered. It was helping women to learn different ways. You know, and back then, you and I remember, you know, they actually had positive roles for women. You know, <laughs> Louis Schaefer will have a lot more to say about this than I will. You know, they used to portray women as, you know, really three-dimensional people who weren't obsessed with babies. Yes, and, because that was the fantasy at that time. Right, right. Um, and, and now, that she, I mean, now, you know, most of the women on the shows are, like, obsessed with getting a husband and, you know, having a baby. Um, but it wasn't always like that. Maybe, maybe this version of the continuing story format has outlived the usefulness that it provided for people like you and me and, you know, millions and millions and millions of other people at that time. Maybe there's something different now that's helping young people to feel connected, to feel hopeful, to feel like they're, they're understanding how to handle problems. Um, the only thing I know is that they did help me. And, you know, as a, as a depressed kid and even as a therapist, I find that the soaps have been very educational. Um, no I don't really think they're providing that function anymore, to be honest with you. Or rarely. If they do, it's kind of by accident. You know, every now and then you get a Kathy Breyer who is just like hits it out of the park and is a fundamental powerhouse of hope and inspiration, but then they fire her. <laughs> so it's like, okay, if that's what soaps are about, if they want more Stacy and less Marcy, then screw it. You know, maybe they're just not providing, maybe they're, the function of these shows are not serving the way they once did. And that is how things are changing. Maybe young people are learning different ways. You know, let's let's talk about Stacey Morasco since you brought it up. Uh, the stripper that ate one life to live, as it were. Um, Ooh, has there, I, I can't even remember when the last time a character on, came on that was so hated. Like, really and hated. she's on five days a week. Uh-huh. It is un, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I remember, I remember when, you know, Maurice Bernard and Ingo Rademacher first came on General Hospital, and even they weren't on five days a week, and they became sensations. I mean, this girl is on five days a week, and nobody can stand her. Yeah, not cool. You know, <laughs> one of again, I, I think one of the changes, Brandon, is that, and I think in response to something you said earlier, it's like the difference now is that we have the internet, and no matter what happens, we're going to have, um, you know, these these older shows to to look back on, even if they all go away, even if all the newer episodes are gone. One of the things that Hulu is giving us now are um, repeats of Another World. Yes. And, you know, if you go on now, you can see some amazing, amazing work from 1991, which was kind of past its heyday in a lot of ways. But if you look at it now, it's like genius. And one of the reasons why, <laughs> you know, you look at it now and it's like, God, 
they were doing good stuff because it was about like these they were pretty clear that it was about this community of people and you know they had people that were on more often than others at different times you know sometimes three or four times a week but there was no one central family or one central person it revolved around mm-hmm. it was really quite um a, a what should I call it a tapestry a canvas and you know they interacted with each other and there was no and story if, in a if something happened if something happened to one person on the canvas it affected everybody on the canvas in some right. way Right, everybody was affected by what was happening, and they all kind of exactly. pulled together as a community. And there were no exactly. really good guys, there were no really bad guys. Everyone sort of had shades of, of circumstances, and the women were strong comparatively to what you see today. They weren't obsessed with babies, they weren't obsessed with getting married, they were a lot more into their careers. And you look at that, and I'm like, okay, well, this is, is something positive, and it's out there. And it's not on a network now, it's not on the air, but it's out there. Mm-hmm. And it's good stuff. So maybe it's and changed. It, maybe the need for these shows have changed, or maybe the the format of how they need to be seen has changed. I don't know if any young person today is really getting anything positive out of these shows, but maybe they are. Exactly. You know, I I I often wonder if there had been things like MySpace and Facebook in the in the 70s and 80s, would something like Journal Hospital have become a nationwide sensation as it did? Um, you know, I. I wonder if you didn't hit on something a while ago when you said that young people are getting are getting fulfilled in different ways the way we got fulfilled by these shows back in the day. Right. I mean, this was sort of my, you know, Salem and, and Bay City and Santa Barbara were kind of my intro, like my ways of seeing what was out there in the world, my distorted view of the world. You know, because <laughs> you didn't have contact. There was no other way to learn what was yeah. out there. Um, exactly. Now, and now kids, kids they have MySpace and Facebook, and, and that's how they connect to the world outside of the one they know. Right. And they can talk yeah. to each other, and they can talk about their problems, and they can learn about problems, and they can do fan fiction and write stuff, and they can write blogs, and, you know, and <laughs> I, I don't think this reality thing, TV, is very interesting, but, you know, a lot of people are into that and find something good about that. So, Okay. Great. And, you know, again, it's like so that perhaps what was so helpful for you and me growing up is not necessarily what's so helpful for people now. And it was the same way for the generation before us. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, Maybe. some of the reality is really interesting. I, there's there, there's a great, I think it's a Discovery Channel that does um, in the afternoons like a baby story and a moving story, you know, stuff like that. And and some of those are, are pretty interesting once you once you start watching and get into that. Um, some of the more tawdry things like some of the dating shows that MTV does and stuff like that, not so much. But, you know, some of the reality is really kind of interesting and compelling and, and um, uh, uh, I don't know, comments on society in a hopeful way. I think so. You know, remember, you know, years and hundreds of years ago, people, like, went to the bullfights to watch people die. Or, you know, people, you know, used to go to the guillotines. It was like the public event to see, like, who was going to get their head chopped off. We have a human thirst for watching suffering. And, you know, it's a lot more civilized today. You know, people watch Jerry Springer instead of guillotines. I don't even know if Jerry Springer's on, so I don't know. I'm kind of bullshitting about that. But, you know, it's like people enjoy suffering, and they enjoy watching suffering. For me, I enjoy it much more in a fictional format, you know, where there's something sort of hope and redeemable Mm -hmm. that's taken out of it. 
you know, but but I don't think this thirst for quote unquote reality TV is that different from sort of the more organ structural components of other parts and times in history. I really don't. Yeah. But there's still no excuse for firing Kathy Breyer. Not in any universe. Not in any time. I'm sorry. No way. Jeez. You know, Are you a fan I, of her music? What's that? Are you a fan of her music? Oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. You, you know, I mentioned her? in um, the interview I did with her, and I, um, you know, she actually, so one of these times when I was writing Absolutely Shouldless and was just in this total funk of like, ugh, what am I doing? This is a waste of time. What am I doing? Nobody cares. I went to see her sing here in New York, and wow. I got a chance to meet her then. And, you know, she was there, and she was pushing her CDs, and I was like, you know, this is somebody who doesn't wait for opportunities. This is someone who doesn't just accept what she's been told she should want and how to uh-huh. do it. This is someone who, tra- you know, really blazes her own trail. Mm-hmm. She's really making it happen. She's up there singing, and she's up there acting on One Life to Live. And I was like, okay, that's great. If she can do it, I can do it too. Wow. And I had a chance to tell her that on the Rock the Soap cruise a few weeks ago, and um, she seemed pretty pleased to hear that. <laughs> that was such a, you know, that was really amazing. Um, so I wanted to say a couple words, if I can, about what's coming up on uh, the Soap Shrink column. You absolutely can. You know, you went on you went on the cruise a couple weeks ago, and you, you interviewed, I guess, a handful of soap stars and... Uh, a few of the a few of the interviews have been posted already. You did one with Susan Haskell, which was great. Mm-hmm. You did one with Kathy Breyer, mm-hmm. um, and there was a third one posted, right? Greg Rickhart went out. Yes, Greg Rickhart. Um, and so, uh, what's what's coming up? Who else did you get a chance to have a sit down with? Coming up this week is going to be my interview with Van Hansis. Excellent. Who is just such a cool guy and really funny. Um, and you know, like he had a lot of insights into his character, a lot more than I thought. So that's going to be interesting. Um, does, he have, does he have any sense at all what a pioneer he is? Yes, not in a in an arrogant way, but but he's really aware of his responsibility. It seemed to me. Excellent. Um, he is aware of the responsibility and the gravity of what he's doing as as Luke. And um, yeah, he's 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 got it. Excellent. Um, Hopefully, I think it's going to run Friday. We're going to be putting up the interview I did with Bobby Eeks, okay. who is just, again, so sweet um, and said a lot of things that surprised me. I can't and a great believe. singer in her own right. She's such a great singer, and, and um, you know, I got a chance to hear her sing. Um, I'll be hearing her sing this Sunday at the Divas of Daytime concert here in New York, so if anyone's in the New York area, you know, Google Divas of Daytime because they're performing Sunday night of April 19th. Um, and then there's coming up is uh, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Hendrickson, uh, mm-hmm. Melissa Claire Egan, and then one more I'm not giving away. Oh, there's give one more coming up, and you just got to keep reading because suffice to say I was in a star-struck daze for for a long time after that. It was it was like someone who I was seriously starstruck by, you know, male or female. You got to read it. I ain't telling. Oh, give us a hint. Okay, male or female? Yes. Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Now you have to read it. MarlenaDeLaCroix.com. Again, Croix okay. spells C-R-O-I-X. Um, and also on my own website, Shouldless.com. That's S-H-O-U, 
S-H-O-U-L-D-L-E-S-S, one word, shouldless.com. I also do a lot of blogging and, and talking about the book, about one, getting to do wonderful things like this, talking to you, Brandon. Um, and about there's also a link to all these soap shrink columns and just my own sort of rambles, you know, tidbits, about living in this crazy world of ours with a little more peace by being shouldless. Um, talking about dealing with the recession from a shouldless standpoint, talking about losing guiding light from a shouldless standpoint, all these things that are not going the way we want them to go, where people are like, God, times are getting harder and harder. Well, they might be getting harder and harder, but we don't have to lose more sleep over it. We just don't. So that's what you'll catch on my blog, shouldlist.com. Um, Ed's always telling me I'm not doing enough promotion that I've got to make sure I say it, you know, like every 15 minutes. So I'm making up for it now, shouldlist.com. <laughs> and there are links to both his website, shouldlist.com, and Marlena's website, marlenadelacroix.com, on my blog, brandonsbuzz.com, uh, in, the, in the My Posse section. So if you'll scroll down a little bit to about the middle of the page and, and look over there on the right-hand side in that little box, You'll find those two websites, and you can click there. And, and they're, they're both terrific writers. And it's in addition to being helpful, there's also just marvelous writing to savor on, on both websites. It's, it's really great. Thank you. You know, what I love about this whole Internet thing, Brandon, is, is how many diverse voices there are out there, how many people are out there, like, putting out their energy building community, again, so like people like me don't think I'm the only soap-loving <laughs> queen out there, you know, really realize that there's so many different voices and just some really cool folks doing some amazing things using this medium, like you, you know, using this new medium to, to get your, you know, to do these interviews. It's like this to me is amazing. I'm so inspired by reading these blogs and hearing these podcasts. It's, it's cool. Like who knew that we would ever get a chance to do this? Absolutely, and you know it's been it's been a lot of hard work, but it's been great fun getting all of this off the ground, and and uh, you know it's it's really a great outlet of expression. It really is. Mm-hmm. I think so, and I would encourage anybody. Again, I'm not in any way connected to these people, but if you've got a chance next year, that includes you, Brandon. Um, next year, they're doing Rock the Soap Cruise again. They're going to do it exactly one year, like from this past weekend. So it's like whatever that's going to be next year, April. 10th, 11th, um, if people can go, I so much, I mean, I'm so glad I went. I, I kind of broke the bank on this one, which I don't like to do, but I, I re, it just like it was amazing. I'm so glad I did. Um, and next year I'm going to like stow away Brandon in my suitcase so everyone can come. And, you know, just, it's such a great chance to meet these stars. It's such a great chance to like meet this amazing community that we've got out there. Wow. Um, and have a lot of fun. How many, how many people, how many lay people, quote unquote, were on the boat? How many people got laid? Brandon, I don't know. Jeez. Maybe the soap shrink, but I'm not that nosy. Oh, you mean like soap fans? Yes. Um, I don't I think they told me it was somewhere above three hundred. Okay. Um, I don't think it wasn't I mean, I think for a recession it was a pretty amazing number. I don't know if it was exactly what they were hoping, but um in any event, we are aware that it's going to be much, I mean, because now people like me are yapping about it, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, there, it, uh, we really anticipate there's going to be a much bigger turnout next year. Because it, it, seriously, I mean, I'm a soap fan, but I had never seen anything like this. I've never been to any of like soap, I've never been to fan events before. I've never gone to them. 
Um, yeah, no. It was such a weird opportunity, and again, weird in such a great way, to just be face-to-face and like hang out and talk to some of these people I admire so much. And what kind of proximity did you did you have to the the stars? I mean, did you have did you have pretty much total access? Randy, or... that's personal. <laughs> no, not like that. No, we just you know we hung out. You know, like uh, there was a meet and greet. I got a chance to take pictures with them. Occasionally, you know, you might have outside of one of the organized events, you might see somebody sitting out and you know sitting out having a drink, or you know you just sit down and talk to them for a few minutes. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, because I have sort of the soap shrink microphone in my hand, um, I had a chance to, you know, some of them were very generous with me to give me some of their time so I could ask them questions as the soap shrink. And, um, again, thank God for Bobby Eakes because she was the first one to sort of break the ice on that. And when she did it, other people were willing to do it. Um, And, you know, so I actually had it. I mean, for me, that was just a very surrealistic amazing moment to be sitting face-to-face with somebody for, like, 20 minutes and, um, you know, ask them these questions I've always wanted to ask them. Uh-huh. Especially people you've watched on TV for years and years. I mean, you know, I've watched somebody like Susan Haskell. I mean, I remember when she first debuted on One Life to Live. So in many ways, we grew up together. So it, I can imagine it would be just a, a surreal treat to actually sit across from her and ask her questions and have her actually respond. Yeah, I know, because I ask her questions all the time, but that was the first time she'd ever responded. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> so talk about talk about the soaps you loved as a kid and how you came to the genre. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about how young you were when you first started watching, you know, what were the first soaps you remember falling for? Well, I, I've got a great and sad story for that. Um, my mother's mother was um, actually watched Days of Our Lives from day one, from the very beginning. And she got my mother and her sister into watching it. Um, my mother, and then so my grandmother, who, was, um, who I'm talking about, was very, very sick with cancer while my mother was pregnant with me. And she, my mother and her mother, would sit and watch Days of Our Lives while my mother was pregnant with me, and my grandmother was quite sick. My grandmother actually wanted to live to see me born and, you know, was very intense on that. And she died actually just a couple months after I was born. Wow. So my mother continued the legacy and, you know, I'm just like, okay, you know, I hear McDonald Carey's words and it's like, you know, I heard these in the stomach when, when you know, I was being carried. Um, I just remember watching it with my mom, you know, around the house, sorting the laundry, you know. we The life would come to a standstill when Days of Our Lives came on at 12 o'clock. This was in Southern California. It used to be on at 12 o'clock. Um, and sometimes she would have her friends come over, and that was always fun. Um, and one of my earliest memories was Doug and Julie's wedding, the first one from 1976, because that was a huge, huge day. Like, she had, like, 20 people over. I don't know that many, but, <laughs> you know, she had quite a group. You know, as a, log, as a small kid, it was like there were a million adults in the living room watching Doug and Julie's wedding. It was momentous, momentous occasion. Um, and then, like I said, when Marlena Evans debuted in 1976, that like, oh. I instantly was like, wow, I want to be that. And I can't <laughs> even remember as, like, five years old thinking that. So that's, that's yeah. kind of what I grew up on and just, you know, again, really attached. I didn't – I wasn't into children's shows so much. I wasn't into kids' stuff. But I just really loved Days of Our Lives. I mean, like, to me as a kid. It's like, and I didn't even always understand what they were talking about. But there was just something that seemed really cool about it. 
actually, you know, it didn't it didn't matter that you didn't get it. I mean, you know, there was the whole point was there was a whole other world happening right beyond the television screen. I mean, there was there was just a whole other world happening. Right. And this was Bill Bell's world back then. So, or at least his <laughs> yeah, his influence. So, it was still one where it was, you know, where you had people just kind of sitting around having conversations. Mhm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, devil possessions, and it wasn't fires or, you know, people coming back from the dead. It was just, like, adults trying to get through the day, you know, being upset about stuff and talking about it. And to me, that was just, like, fascinating as a kid. I wanted to see more of that. I wanted to know more about that. And then, of course, The Doctors was on right before Days of Our Lives, so I had to see The Doctors. You know, I had to catch The Doctors. You know, and that was when Kim Zimmer was on and – um Oh, God, the woman, you know, Elizabeth Hubbard was on back then. Uh-huh. Um, and Hillary B. Smith. Right, right. Yeah. Even though I don't really remember her so much. I don't know why I don't remember her. But I just loved Kim Zimmer's character, Nola. I just thought, like, you know, again, I was a kid. I didn't know anything about her. I was just like, Nola is so cool. I just love <laughs> Nola. <laughs> so, you know, I don't even know why anyone was surprised when I came out. I didn't even know. <laughs> this show isn't this enough uh, <laughs> so then as a kid I think where you know of course Santa Barbara started was all into that I know I watched Another World at some point but I don't remember liking it that much until and you're going to hate me for this Brandon but you know it, I started really getting into to Another World around the Sam and Amanda period of 87 and I think that's when okay. you kind of got fed up and turned yes, it off exactly exactly um, but to me, that was just like, oh, you know, this is really interesting, you know. I mean, that was one of the few times that I can ever remember in a young couple coming on and being, like, interesting. Wow. And, you know, just... You know, I, I, wish I, I wish I could pinpoint why I got bored with it, but I just really got disenchanted with the whole NBC lineup that summer of 88. And I, 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 for the life of me, I can't tell you why. I can't point to one specific thing. It was, well, that was like, a writer's well, strike. You remember that? Yes, I do. I do remember that. So it's like it wasn't even it wasn't the writers that was doing the damage at that point. It did suck. <laughs> Though Another World was pretty good, and there were rumors, I don't know if this was ever confirmed or not, that Harding LeMay was actually writing it secretly during the summer of 88. Um, or he had come on right before the writer's strike and never came back, but there were like rumors that he was still doing writing. I don't know. I thought Another World was really good that year. Um, but most of them sucked because they were, you know, scabs. And see, that was the year that One Life to Live got so crazy, but it was it was one of those shows that you had to watch it every single day. I mean, it was so crazy and so nonsensical, but you couldn't miss an episode. Those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish we could say that now about any show. I mean, you know, even even the and I'm not as sold right now on Young and the Restless as everybody else seems to be in the in the in the blogosphere. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, even that show, you can miss three days a week and still keep a pretty good beat on what's going on. Right. I admire that show. I really do, because they're, they're trying. You know, they're really trying. It's the only show where it feels like anybody still gives a shit. And, you know, that's, it's nice to see that. It's hopeful for me. And what's hilarious about that show is it's still multi-generational. You know, there, you can still see kind of the classic outline of classic soap. There's young lovers. There's, you know, the, the tight-knit families. There's, you know, m- multiple generations within each family. I mean, it's it's really quite funny that that 
they're proving that back to basics really does kind of work if you just yeah. do it. Yeah. And it's working. I mean, they're like they're they're rising in the ratings. You know, they have an eighty-one year old woman at the forefront, and they're just like skyrocketing. <laughs> skyrocketing. I'll tell you what, though, I am so glad that story has finally come to a uh, a new phase because it got really repetitive the last month. The whole Catherine Chancellor thing. Right. I mean, Jess Walton was playing the the exact same scene for pretty much six weeks straight, <laughs> and you could tell that she was getting fed up with it. You could, I mean, you could see her her impatience on screen, so. Yeah. But it's really it is good. So, it's, they've moved into phase two of that storyline. Right. It is so refreshing, I think, to finally see at least one of the remaining shows really owning its roots and really embracing what it's about instead of trying to be something else, instead of trying to be, I don't know what Guiding Light was trying to be this past year, to be honest with you, but whatever it was, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't liking it. Um uh, you know, again, up until recently, and then they switched into suddenly. I think it was only in the last month that this whole new style of shooting really coalesced with the stories uh-huh. and with the characters. And Otalia, I mean, how amazing is that? And the fact that people are totally on board with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a different time we live in. And again, so, you know, when I was... Um, you know, I said to Van Hans, it's just like, God, I wish there was Nuke when I was growing up, because that really would have made a difference. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you know, and thanks to the story, there won't be people 20 years from now telling me, you know, how much they wish there was a Nuke, because there is a Nuke. And I'm like, how did you know how old I was, you little fucker? <laughs> but you just assumed. But, uh, <laughs> but the truth is, it's like, you know, thanks again to things like Otalia, and thanks again to this Internet and this community thing. There's not going to be kids growing up today searching for identification through, you know, a three-channel system and being disappointed by what they see. If they don't like it on somewhere, they're, they're, you know, they can see it somewhere else. There's movies. There's like, you know, there was Will and Grace forever. You know, there's so many other outlets for people to get information, which, again, perhaps leads us to say and leads us to consider that soaps may not have the relevancy that they once did. You know, they don't. We don't have to turn to soaps for this kind of stuff. I don't. You know, exactly. kids today don't have to peer into this Bill Bell world to learn how adults function. And you know, that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. You know. So where's the where's the genre in five years? Woo! You're asking me, huh? <laughs> oh boy, I can't even imagine. You know, five years ago, if you had asked me that, I, I really would have guessed that there would have been even less on than there are now. I thought Guiding Light was a goner a long time ago. Oh, me too. I, I remember when Laura Wright left in 2005, and, and uh, you know, the word was that, you know, it just, it wasn't going to, it was going to be, you know, 18 months tops, and, and here we are, you know, coming up on four years later, and it's just now, the act is just now fallen, so... I remember that. I remember in 2005 when the hatchet really fell, and they were saying, it's like, okay, we promise it'll be on until 2007, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and just, <laughs> you know, I mean, days, you know, as the world turns is next, days is next. Have me back when days is gone, because then I'll be, you know, I fucked the shitless stuff. I want Salem back. <laughs> but, you know, days, which is my soap, I love it, but it's been dying on the vine a long time creatively, uh-huh. if you ask me. Mm-hmm. You know? And again, I don't always know if there is value in prolonging a relationship if it's not working. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> I don't know. Is there? Maybe there is. Maybe it is working. I mean, obviously, Dave's was up in the ratings, so it's working for somebody, but it's not working for me. What I gave think? up on that show a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I you know I I mean I turned it on I turned it on when Patch and Kayla came back a couple of years ago, and you know I'll, I'll follow the news and and something will catch my eye and I think well I'll watch that I watched it when uh, last February when Patchy Peace came back for Sean's funeral, and that was amazing because you know that that was that was my day I mean Kim and Shane were the couple of of you know the days when I was watching, um, and so I watched it when she came back and you know it was. It was really great fun to see her, and then she left again, and the show got boring again. And it was like, well, okay, you know, it's it's you know, I know that that we haven't walked in people like Ellen Wheeler and Ken Corday's shoes. I know, you know, that we that we lay way too much at their door, and they have you know stuff to deal with that we don't have any clue about. But you know, it seems like you could find a way to, even if you can't have these people on screen every day, it seems like you could find a way to mention them in scripts, or give the illusion of community, give the illusion of family. Right. And I'm glad you said that, too, about, like, um, Ellen Wheeler and Ken Corday, because, you know, I don't know any of these people, but I sure wouldn't want their job. Exactly. I mean, what a thankless job that is. You know, and, I, you know, people love to blog and love to complain about how these people are so heartless and they just don't care and... You know, they want to kill their show. Well, they want to kill their show. They could have done it a long time ago. I don't think these people really want to kill their show. I just think they're they're reacting from a place of fear. And any time we react from a place of fear, we usually screw things up even worse. Mm-hmm. I don't think they know what to do. And like you said, I don't. Th- I think they're dealing with elements that you and I don't even know about. You know, exactly. It's, it's, it's not like they just get to make decisions here. They're dealing with network executives, and those executives are dealing with executives, and those people are dealing with advertisers, and they're trying to appease them and the writers and the audience, and I just think I'm just glad I'm not doing it. I, I don't know if I can do any better. You know, I mean, I think I could. I, you know, would have, you know, Deidre Hall back every day, but, you know, <laughs> and, and Susan and Julie Williams, and it would just, you know, it'd be their show. <laughs> they could save a lot of money just by making a show all about them. But... <laughs> Um, but, you know, probably other people wouldn't like that. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, what what strikes me is it seems it seems to me, to my innocent eye, and as I said, I'm I'm as far detached as you can get. I'm just a viewer. But it seems to me that one Deidre Hall is worth ten of these, you know, little tweens that are running around Salem these days, like Melanie and, you know, even Philip and, and you know, all these people who who aren't worth one Deidre Hall to me. And, it, it you know, I, I can't understand why you can't, you know, take – a core of say ten or fifteen really strong actors and really strong characters, and build the show around them. You know, I don't either. That's a great question. Um, you know, I think Ed Scott was trying to do that last year. I think he was really trying. I think that's where he was going. You know, and he was the executive producer was involved with for Sean's death and bringing back Patsy Pease and really respecting mm-hmm. the history and putting the veterans front and center and doing that mm-hmm. whole crazy storyline in Ireland and all that, you know, and, and, you know, whether you loved it or hate it, you got to appreciate he was trying to really Absolutely. make the veterans um, in front and center. And so, you know, how do they reward that? They fired his ass. <laughs> so, you know, it's sort of like, how do you care at that point? It's a, it's a sinking ship. And, you know, f- for what it's worth, their um, creative decisions are paying off financially because they got rid of Deidre Hall they got rid of Stephen Kayla and you know what happened the ratings went up 
Does that make any sense? No. But that's what After happened. everybody swore that they would never watch again. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, you know, for the 85 Nielsen families or something, you know, they're watching it. <laughs> now, have you ever known a Nielsen family or known anyone who's known a Nielsen family, Brandon? You know what? Years ago, I got sent a a um a package in the mail and it had a Nielsen diary in it <gasps> and it had $5 bills. <gasps> and it, it it wasn't it wasn't like a Nielsen box or a people meter, it was just a diary that I had to fill out for a week and send it back in. And um I did it. And I you know what I did was I I didn't write down everything I watched. I wrote down everything I watched and everything I thought about watching or everything I I wanted to help out in some way. You know what I mean? And uh, this was, good Lord, this was 15 years ago or better. Um, but, yeah, I, I actually filled out one of these Nielsen diaries. I've never known anybody with a people meter or one of the boxes or whatever they use these days. I've never, ever known anybody with, with one of those. But but I have been a, a Nielsen diary filler-outer. So, What did you put on there? Oh, my God, I'm dying to know. <laughs> Oh my God! Well, good Lord! It was, or have you been sworn to secrecy? Where you get shot if you tell? Oh, uh, I, I I probably was at the time, but but good Lord! It's, it's been so many years now. But it was Regis and Kathy Lee. It was One Life to Live. It was uh, Murder One, that great Stephen Bochco show that that aired for a season or two. Oh yeah. It was um, you know stuff like that. My so-called life was that on then? Uh, no, it was after that. Oh. Yeah. Wow, you are like I think the, it was I think it was spring of 96 somewhere in there. Wow. So, you are a real Nielsen family. <laughs> you rename the whole show Confessions of a Nielsen Family. <laughs> That's amazing. See, you're like Go the figure. first person I've ever known. It's really? I would have thought like with Facebook and with this whole internet thing now that somebody, you know, would have said, "Yeah, I was a Nielsen family at one point." Exactly. And it's like one of those things you really don't hear about. Yeah. I was sort of under the suspicion that it was just all false. It didn't really exist, but you've just proven it wrong. <laughs> My conspiracy theory just went out the window. But, you know, it also shows that it it doesn't seem to me like it's very scientific. Well, it's it's totally not. I mean, uh, you know, they say that that they in the Nielsen quote-unquote sample that that one I don't even know how they how they counted, but one yes equates to however many thousands of of, you know, eyeballs watching this show. And so, you know, I mean, that's, there are so many variables in that equation that there's no way to get an accurate sampling of, of who's watching what. There's just no way. Right. Right. And, you know, I, I was listening to something the other day, and for the life of me, I can't remember what it was, but but somebody on some interview was saying, you know, with all the technology we have these days, with TiVo, with, you know, cable companies, with, you know, all the invasive technology that we have running our lives these days, you would think that somebody would figure out a way to just know what we're watching automatically. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, <laughs> Bush's time, you know, we lost so much privacy. You'd think this was one thing that we would be willing to give up that, you know, could be monitored. But, you know, and it seems so strange to me that, that the phenomenon online of Nuke and As the World Turns and what they've been doing with that, You've got to, I can't, you know, it's sad to me that there's not a way that they're channeling that into some sort of rating measure or saying, you know, a certain amount of hits on YouTube or something, that there's not a way to use that in a way that's financially viable for the people that are invested in that. You know, I don't think most of the people running these shows are heartless. I think it's a business, and bottom line, it is a business. 
And if your show is bleeding money every single week, then eventually <laughs> you got to figure out what to do about that. But, you know, from my standpoint, it's like, you know, how can you ignore what's happening on the Internet? How can you ignore all these hits that Nuke gets, and how can you take advantage of that exactly. sell shit? Exactly. You know? There's got to be no. a way, but I think that by the time they figure it out, it's going to be too late for some of our beloved shows. You know, one of the great things that that uh, General Hospital Night Shift did last year was they made little little mini, like, five-minute episodes featuring two of their characters, uh, and they posted them on SoapNet, and, and they posted them with advertising. So, you know, they were making money of some kind on these things. Uh, I don't know if it was per hit or per view or whatever, but you know they were making money on it because there was advertising attached to these little mini episodes. Um, you would think that, that somebody enterprising at P&G or CBS or, or uh, you know, someone at As the World Turns would, would take that idea and apply it to Nuke or Emily and Casey or, you know, take two of their characters that, that uh, have created some kind of buzz and do something like that around them. I would hope so. You'd think so. I think so. I don't know why it's not happening. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they are heartless. I don't know. I just know it's not happening. And, you know, that technology has been available for quite a while now, and it's just really not being utilized for that. Um, whereas and something, something, like YouTube, something like YouTube proves that there's viability for an idea like that. Yes. And, you know, Imaginary Bitches, which was, you know, created by um, Andrew Miller, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Eden Regal's husband, who, yeah. you know, we're both also on the Rock the Soap cruise and talked a lot about, you know, this this phenomenon, this Internet phenomenon that they did, which was to do this this these Internet pieces, these short Internet pieces about okay. a character named Eden who has these imaginary friends who are kind of mean to her. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I had a chance to ask them, you know, did they were they hoping and did they see this as like kind of the future of where the soaps are going to go? Um, you know, and of course they don't know for sure, but they certainly spoke to the value of putting the creativity back into the writer's hands. Mm-hmm. That's something, Brandon, I think is really different because I think when you and I were growing up watching these wonderful shows on NBC, most of the power, from what I understand in retrospect, came from the writers. Absolutely. I'm sure they had to deal with plenty of interference, but you know, they didn't have as much interference from all these executive producers and networks and everybody muggling around with some good stories. The Internet's going to allow for writers to get their ideas out there without having to deal with the interference. And that's where I think the positive, if there's going to be any positive stuff that happens from the networks you know, dying out and from the shows dying out, it's going to be that I think the Internet could pick up where the shows left, where the show, network shows are leaving off, much the way radio used to do, you know, when Guiding Lights started 72 years ago. They were just these little 15-minute snippets that you would listen to, and they evolved into something so much more than that, but they started as these addictive little tidbits 15 <laughs> minutes a day. And, you know, what the Internet needs to do is figure out how to make money off of that, and I think, you know, Andrew and you know is really has his ear to that and is looking for ways to do that, and hopefully Imaginary Bitches DVDs will be profitable and they'll see, you know, they'll be able to hire more talent to continue to do these kinds of things. But I'm really hopeful. You know, I, I think in one way this is Guiding Light is, is the death knell and, and, you know, it's going to be, uh, I don't know if it's a domino effect, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not good for this genre. But I do think that out of the ashes will come an innovative and exciting new way to tell continuing stories on the Internet. And I think these stories are going to be a lot better than the crap we've been seeing the last 15 years. <laughs> 
I totally agree with that. And you know, as I as I said in, in the blog post that I that I published last weekend, um, you know, if the oldest oak in the forest can be chopped down completely flippantly, um, you know, it's it, it proves that nothing is sacrosanct anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, we live. And that's, I mean, that's kind of a scary concept to wrap your mind around. Right. You know, everything changes. Nothing stays the same. You know, bodies die, shows die. That's the fact of the world. Um, one of the things that I think is amazing about the time we're living in is that change is happening all over, and it's happening in some pretty miraculous ways. I think what's been happening with our president and the change that's happened in this country in the last year politically is something phenomenally miraculous that I never thought I would see. I just never thought I'd live to see this kind of day happen. But change is happening in other ways that I don't like very much. And I think everybody in this country right now is kind of experiencing that on some level. People are loving some of the changes they're seeing. People are hating some of the changes they're seeing. But the only thing that's going to be guaranteed for these next five years is that there's going to be more of it. And we're living in confusing times, you know. There was never, I don't know if there was ever a time when things weren't changing and weren't confusing. I tend to think of the 70s as like this really cool time when everyone was happy and just groovy, right? (laughs) But then I watched like All in the Family reruns, and all they were doing was sitting around bitching about how confused they were about the times and about the problems and about inflation and Nixon and the guy. I mean, you know, there was never this time where things were just like cool and steady and easy, I don't Mm -hmm. think. You know, my grandparents lived through the Depression. They made it through. Absolutely. You know, so it's not like this is going to go away. And I think if people really do consider change, you know, adapting to change from a shouldless perspective. Oh, I forgot to mention that. Shouldless.com. If they check shouldless.com and get ideas about how to adapt to change from a shouldless perspective, they're going to have a much easier time and a much better night's sleep. Absolutely. And if I'm wrong then email me and tell me how wrong I am. But, you know, at least, at least then you're thinking about it. And that's what I'm hoping to do here is get people thinking. You know, we always tend to romanticize what we've lived through and, and kind of, you know, demonize what we're facing. So, you know, uh, along the lines of, of what you just said, that's, that's kind of the, the general trend, I think. And that's, that, you know, that's, that's held true for generations, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I have had such amazing fun talking to you. We've been babbling on for two hours, believe it or not. Oh, um, my God, Brandon, it went so fast. You know, we no. could have just watched without commercials. We could have seen like a whole week of Guiding Light just now. <laughs> my God. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you remember like when we were kids, it's like if you fast-forwarded the commercials on Days of Our Lives, you'd still be sitting there for like 48 minutes. And now it's like 36 minutes. <laughs> wow. Um, I've had such a wonderful time talking with you, Brandon. I hope we can do this again. Me too. I tell you what, you have you have a permanent forum here. Anytime you wish to discuss anything you wish, you are absolutely Ooh. a delightful guest. And I've had great fun chatting with you online. And it was great to finally put a voice to the name. And and I certainly hope we can do this again about about many other topics. I hope There's, so too. As long as you know, we, we haven't still... even, we haven't even talked about music or American Idol or politics or news or anything. I mean, there's so much more to to, to gab about. What? There's there's more than soaps? I I can't I don't I what? Yeah, believe it or not, yes. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. I'll start reading now. <laughs> I want to tell everybody one more time. Absolutely should less is the name of the book and it can be found at Amazon, it can be found at any of the online major bookstores. Mm-hmm. Or um, com will link you absolutely. right to it. Absolutely. And also so, the, so- the soap my, um, column. What's that? 
the soap shrink column can be read at marlenadelacroix.com, uh, and you can link to both of those sites on my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. Right, and we've got some great interviews coming up. Again, this has been like a dream come true to meet some of these people and interview them as a soap shrink. Um, I think people are going to read it, and you know what Van Hans has had to say. I think they're really going to like it. It's pretty. It's it's good. It's good stuff. Um, so come on over and read it this week. I can't wait to read it. Yeah. So before I let you go, could I get you to do a promo for my show? I I was waiting for that. I was like, when does that? Okay, okay. <laughs> you can like say anything you like. Part. You can say anything you like as long as it includes the words Brandon's Buzz and Damon Jacobs. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Shoot. Okay, this is Damon L. Jacobs, author of Absolutely Should List, and I am catching Brandon's buzz and loving it. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. You are so fantastic. Oh, you're awesome, Brandon. This is so cool. As long as we get to still do our little, you know, R-rated chats on Facebook, I'm happy. Absolutely. I can't wait. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. It's an honor. I'll talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. The fantastic Damon L. Jacobs, everybody. Absolutely Shirtless is the name of his book. Uh, please go check it out on Amazon and at shirtless.com and or at shirtless.com. Uh, it's great fun, and thank you so much for listening. Tomorrow I have a great guest by the name of Louise Schaefer. She won an Emmy for Another, wor- for another World, for Ryan's Hope, uh, good Lord, 25 years ago or better. Uh, then she became a soap writer. She is now a novelist. <laughs> Her latest novel, Serendipity, has just been released, and she's coming on the buzz to talk about that, to talk about Ryan Tope, to talk about Claire Labine, to talk about soaps, to talk about all of it. So uh, you don't want to miss a second of that. Uh, that's tomorrow, 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific, right here on Brandon's Buzz, www.blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. Wednesday, I have a great interview lined up with Billy Vera of Billy Vera and the Beaters. 1986 was his year with a great song called At This Moment, which was a huge hit after its exposure on Family Ties. Um, He's still a musician. He does voiceover work now, and he writes television themes, and he still performs with the Beaters, and and, uh, we're going to have a great conversation about music, about art, about life. That's Wednesday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, right here on Brandon's Buzz, www.blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can go there. You can listen to and download old shows. Um, you can also go to my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There's a full radio archive. You can listen to um, previous shows, and you can look at the great banners that my pal Joanne has made for advertising the show. That's at brandonsbuzz.com in the radio archive. Just click the radio button at the top of the page. It'll take you right to it. Also on iTunes. I'm on iTunes, guys. Type in Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes search box. Go to the podcast section, uh, click on my button, subscribe to the show, and have new episodes automatically downloaded to your Or you can download individual old shows as podcasts. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's great fun. If you had told me a year ago that I would be on iTunes alongside all the musicians that I admire and adore, I would have laughed in your face. Uh, and right here later, and I'm on iTunes with everybody. Uh, so... And thank you for listening to the show. And by all means, download the show. Listen to old shows. Comment on old shows. You know, the guys at Blog Talk Radio, they really look at those those kind of stats and comments and, and all of that. It's very important to keep me up. And, and it's, you know, it's, 
it's really because I love being on the air, and I've loved, you know, kind of connecting with everybody and bringing this show to you guys. And so I appreciate you listening, and I appreciate you enjoying the show, and I hope you continue to enjoy Brandon's Buzz. <laughs>